Hello and welcome back to another episode of Nick Tiffany's Movie Reviews, coming at you online and in print format at nicktiffany.com, in audio format wherever you get your podcasts, and even in video on YouTube. We are starting 2024, you know, January 1st here, on a good note, celebrating the film and the best of in every category that we have, as far as, you know, the Academy Awards go, Critics voting bodies from different cities, a lot of different places you will see at the end of the year. They're kind of doing their wrap up, their best picture. You know, what movies did you see? What was the best performances you saw? Best scripts, screenplays adapted, original, best song, visual effects. I mean, the whole nine yards. It's like a mad dash at the end of the year in December to try to see everything. And I've tried and have done, I would say, a pretty good job of seeing everything as far as awards contention goes. There's a few things I haven't had a chance to review yet, and I would say those are my foreign film entries. Uh, Poor Things with Emma Stone I have seen, just have not reviewed yet, officially. Uh, I have not seen All of Us Strangers, which I think would be in the conversation potentially for Best Picture, Best Actor, Supporting Actor. So that's something I would just, you know, once I get that film, you know, once it opens in the Seattle market, I'll check that out. That's the frustrating thing I think a lot of people are experiencing, or a lot of casual movie fans are experiencing now, is just all of these different awards players. They're like, oh, you know, we'll we'll screen the movie for one week at the end of December. And then in like February, the movie will actually open near your market. And it's frustrating because, you know, for a solid month, I'm pretty much dropping new reviews week after week after week. Most of them, I'm like, most of those movies still haven't come out in Seattle. American Fiction, Zone of Interest, Iron Claw, fortunately, has come out now. Um, But there's, I mean, Origin is not going to come out for a while here. Uh, So it's very interesting to see how all this works and this game these studios play. And I think a lot of people just get frustrated because there's so much great stuff to see and they're limiting those markets, unfortunately. Uh, Freud's Last Session, Memory, I'm like Anthony Hopkins, Jessica Chastain, Peter Skarsgård. I mean, movies that I know exist, but we don't know when they're coming out. So it's just it's just kind of weird. And then, you know, now we're going to start the year, of course, with some horror movies is how January usually starts. Uh, so it's just it's just odd. But, you know, this year compared to last doing this last year, I think I was able to catch up on like 50 movies, I think, for 2022, which after years of not doing film criticism in any capacity and really watching movies like that, you know, 50 for me, I was like, that's huge. That was awesome. Glad I was able to hit that. There were a lot of great movies last year. A goal of mine for this year for 2023 was hit a hundred movies. You know, I've done it in the past. At one point, maybe I would scoff and say a hundred was pedestrian, but living a fuller life at the moment now, um, I was able to hit 100. You know, we hit about 104, 107, somewhere in that range by the time they've been all seen. Uh, you know, a lot of those AMCA list shout out. You know, I was fortunate to go to a lot of different critic screenings as well. Um, AMC early screenings, there were tons of options, video on demand at home. Uh, there's never been more options, I think, for people to see movies. So this year, there's no excuse. If you love movies like I do, check out the A-list, check out Regal's package, whatever theater is near you, make it happen. Because, you know, uh, for me, 2023 was a great year for movies. 
it was tough narrowing a top 10 down. And maybe at some point I'll kind of release a list of, you know, the, the almost made it. Uh, a lot of people kind of give you your, your, your special recognition to this. We're not going to do that here. I'm not going to waste your time here. We're just going to go through my personal Academy style picks. Uh, you know, we're going to start at the bottom of the list. I'm not going to say the least desirable categories. We're going to save the best for last. So buckle in. I'll try to take it through you quick. Um, I will give you my preference for a majority of those just as far as my top five for each category and the one that I would pick as we get closer to those actors, screenplays, directors, film, things like that. I will give you kind of my power ranking as I've thought through it for the year. So we're going to start with a category that the Seattle film critics are, you know, I don't know if they were the ones who started it. They're certainly the ones who inspired me though. And that is the best action choreography. And so just jumping in my top five extraction Two, which came out on Netflix has largely stuck with me as like a competitor to John wick Four, which is also on this list here. The two of those just nonstop incredible work, both directors firing on all cylinders, the equalizer three Anton Fuqua. I mean, that was more fun than I thought it was going to be maybe a little less violent than the others, but once those bursts happen, it's just awesome. You know, when Denzel checks that watch, it's game over. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Of course, there's going to be a Tom Cruise movie in the action choreography. The dude's a legend, continuously one-upping himself when you didn't think it was possible. And my fifth slot would go to Rebel Moon. Zack Snyder, the dude knows how to do action. I'm excited for those rated R cuts because you can tell the choreography in some of these shots gets cut off midway through because there is a more brutal, a little bit more bloody version that's coming. I'm excited for that, but I really liked what I saw. Best documentary feature, admittedly, of the 100 sub-movies I saw this year, I probably saw five or six documentaries. Something I want to work on for 2024, for sure, because um, there's always, always fantastic documentaries. But of what I saw, a disturbance in the force, talking about the Star Wars holiday special, nerdy for sure, super niche, but really interesting just in terms of looking at what variety specials and shows used to look like. It's not anything a lot of people my age or younger would imagine, I think. And so for that reason, it surprised me in a very pleasant way. Um, American Symphony with John Baptiste. That's probably by far and away the best one this year. That or Michael, uh, the Michael J. Fox, still a Michael J. Fox still a movie. Um, that was very good as well. Stella was one I'd watched about a uh, pizza group kind of searching for a Michelin star over in uh, Napoli. And it was fine. It was good. You know, and then the Stephen Curry underrated documentary on Apple. Really enjoyed that as a fan of Steph Curry. Uh, you know, for me, I think the uh, Michael J. Fox documentary stood out to me the most. Again, these were really the only five or six that I'd seen this year. So take all that with a grain of salt. Definitely need to uh, need to watch some more this year. We'll move right along to our international features, our best foreign films of the year. Fallen Leaves, which is going to be the Finnish entry for the Academy Awards this year. And there's Perfect Days, which is Japan's entry. Uh, the Society of Snow, which is going to be Spain's entry. The Taste of Things from France. And the Zone of Interest from the UK. The Zone of Interest to me is probably the standout there for Jonathan Glazer. A look at 
this Nazi commandant and his family setting up their wonderful, incredible dream home right outside the gates of Auschwitz. It does not ever show you anything behind the walls of the prison, but you hear everything. It is unsettling. It's very timely. Of those foreign international releases, the Society of Snow was battling for my number two, I think, just a really, really compelling drama, kind of horrifying at times, uh, watching survival instincts kick in out in the middle of the snow. J.A. Bayona did a terrific job with that movie, though, that's going to be on Netflix in a few days. I'm stoked that people are going to get to see that. Perfect Days, a lot of people have been loving. You know, a lot of these films, I think, would work better as shorts, the zone of interest included. Um, and maybe for that reason, Society of the Snow would be my top foreign pick. But Fallen Leaves, Taste of Things is a little bit long for my my taste as well. But, you know, I'm always in for a good French film. Um, a lot of the foreign movies I watched this year. Good. I, you know, it's not that I don't like foreign films, that there aren't foreign films that are interesting. I think the batch that I happened to pick out, maybe at the time of the year that I watched them as well, I was like, all right, two hours of watching a guy clean toilets in Japan. Interesting for a little while. I get what they're saying here. Did it need to be that long? No, I got the point. Um, and so that's just, maybe it's a personal thing, but I've seen that movie pop up on a lot of people's lists of like the best movie of 2023. And all I'm saying is if any of you went out there and watched Perfect Days on the recommendation that it's the best movie of 2023, I think a lot of you would come out probably pissed off and like, yeah, uh, I get why there's such a disconnect between critics and audience ratings because I don't know why you praised that. But that that's just a personal thing. Not a bad movie. Just did not need to be as long as it was. Moving into best sound, we've got the creator, which brought in a whole new slew of some cool sci-fi AI uh, sort of sounds. I would say Rebel Moon is right alongside there just as far as creating new blaster sounds, different machinery, different, I don't know. I like, I was really, both of those movies um, caught something of my attention, at least just as far as how things sounded, how things responded to their environments in that world, the different technology they created. Uh, the sound design was just really cool. I was like, all right, this is something I haven't totally heard before. Um, Oppenheimer, which I think, would be my pick just as far as what they were able to create with sound, whether it was Ludwig Göransson with the soundtrack or just purely the sound designers, the Foley workers, everything they were able to do crafting just symphonies of sonic sound waves. I mean, it was just an unforgettable auditorial experience as well as a visual one. Uh, but the zone of interest I would give credit to as well for uh, best sound, just in terms of that, you know, it's out of sight, but you hear everything, so it stays in the mind. And then I would say the killer, David Fincher's film. Great sound work on there with a the highlight on the fight sequence that kind of comes towards the end of the film. It's like pitch black, but every step, I mean, there's this massive man fighting our killer and just you hear every pound of his footprint, every knock. I mean, it's just, it sounds brutal. Fighting sounds brutal in there. And I'm like, I think that was the goal. And they really did a great job with that. <laughs> Moving on to best visual effects, the creator on an $80 million budget. I mean, they blew away most CGI, most $300 million films like The Flash and Indiana Jones. 
shooting on location, I think really is a big help because it makes it feel like it's a real movie. And then it's like, wow, we don't really need to over jazz everything else with visual effects. They played it simple. And I mean, it looks amazing. Just like Rogue One. I mean, there's sequences that are just jaw-droppingly stunning. Uh, Gareth Edwards is just, he knows what he's doing. Godzilla Minus One, which was a huge, huge surprise for me as well. Some of the effects in that film feel a little more old Toho Godzilla style, which is great. I think there's moments where it looks a little more kind of like a young dinosaur um, at times. And then over the course of the film just gradually turns into a more terrifying beast. I think the black and white version they're releasing is going to be awesome. But that atomic breath has never looked more devastating. Uh, blown away again, just like the creator. It's like a $15 million budget on that movie. And they worked wonders that honestly outshines so much of the rest of the films that came out this year. Oppenheimer didn't make the best visual uh, effects shortlist for the Oscars. Weirdly, it's not a best VFX award. It's just best visual effects. It's, you know, it doesn't mean it's computer generated. Almost everything that they did for Oppenheimer was practical as far as recreating the bomb, trying to create all of these different sparks, fires, infernos, like whatever. I'm like watching the behind the scenes for the movie. Super cool. It's super nerdy, but it is awesome just watching how practically they tried to do everything, how good it looks. And most people would probably think, yeah, that probably is effects of some sort. And it's not. So shout out to them because they did a really terrific job. Uh, Rebel Moon, I thought, is another one. Again, I want that director's cut. You get bits and pieces. We finally have lasers that actually, you know, blow through people's whole bodies. You see the hole that it leaves and the kind of singeing it does. I mean, how many times have we seen stormtroopers get hit with a blaster? And it's like, I guess they're dead. I guess someone's dead. Uh, you know people are dead in Rebel Moon. It's like, oh, yeah, there's like a hole underneath his mouth probably through the top of his head where he got shot there you know it's just i don't know there were more than a few moments in rebel moon where the effects just really stood out to me there were a couple that are still a little dodgy you know i will admit that but by and large i was very impressed with a lot of the visuals in that film but i gotta say best visual effects probably has got to go to spider-man across the spider-verse what they have done with these two films already is nothing short of groundbreaking this ability to breathe life into a comic book on screen in a way that's just, it's popping, it's jaw dropping, it catches your attention. I mean, it feels like that wonderment of flipping through those pages, artwork that you can tell has been meticulously crafted. I mean, these movies have taken years each to make just for the animation. You've got like groups of people spending years doing one or two frames. It's astounding stuff. It is a huge, huge credit to those designers, to the entire team that put it together, because I don't know if people know how special these movies are, but these visual effects cannot be overlooked. What they're doing needs to be praised at the highest level. These people deserve their pay. They deserve fair pay. Uh, I know there's been some rumbling in the visual effects world, especially for CGI groups, especially after all these Marvel movies they've been churning out in TV shows overworking i mean you know give these people what they deserve because they're more than worth it uh, especially in this case here you can see how people can stretch different budgets and it's you know i don't want people to have to stretch those budgets pay your people well and still create a great product it's possible moving on to makeup and hairstyling we've got maestro 
which probably is my pick. It might be the only time you hear that movie on here. Bradley Cooper, Leonard Bernstein did a whole nose job for the movie. He's got a nice prosthetic. They age him incredibly well throughout the movie. That was the biggest standout to me in the film was just how great a job they did aging Bradley Cooper and making it look natural. You still see a little bit of him in there, but it's like, okay, well, he looks like he's well into his 70s and into his 80s now. Uh, I was very, very impressed by that. Everything else was a little showy. Didn't really tell a story in the film, but the makeup, definitely a highlight. The Last Voyage of the Demeter would also pop up on that list. Dracula on a boat. They did awesome with those prosthetics. Um, I think all the, the hairstyling and the makeup for all the crew for the time as well, how dirty you are spending time out on those boats. Uh, they did a great job. Creepy movie feels perfectly of its period. It was awesome. I think they did a terrific job. Dracula's that Nosferatu style that's just terrifying with those teeth. So it's good stuff. Napoleon, you know, for hair, for makeup, I mean, for styling, the jackets, the coats, it just, I mean, the massive wigs, everything. They did a great job. Historical epic done perfectly top to bottom. I expect nothing less of Ridley Scott, and it showed up on screen. Everything looked authentic and incredible in that film. Poor Things, which I'm sure is going to be a lot of people's number one. Yorgos Lantimos, this is a wacky, zany, pseudo-set-in-the-future-ish film following Emma Stone's character, who's got the mind of a baby in a woman's body. Um, the costume design is incredible. Most of Yorgos Lantimos' films have been. Uh, the favorite, of course, they had tons of very period-appropriate royal uh, furnishings and outfits here. And poor things. Great. I mean, it's great. Everything looks great in the film. The set design even. A lot of that stuff's very eye-catching, very popping. For that reason, I know it's going to be people's favorites. Definitely stood out to me as one of my favorite aspects of the movie. Uh, maybe not enough to win this award for me personally, but I enjoyed it. And then I would also say Priscilla kind of rounds, uh, rounds out my number five. Uh, the hairstyling, especially in that movie, with how much hair you can put on top of one person's head really impressed me. Um, all the outfits they were wearing just looked elegant. They were beautiful. They felt obviously time appropriate, but more than that, I mean, just the attention to detail really sold so much of the elegance in that story as well. So much of the isolation, I think uh, they did a really, really terrific job with that. And then we've also got costume design. You know, we've got are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. A big throwback for Judy Bloom fans. I thought all the costuming there looked great. It felt like you were in a much older America back in the, uh, I want to say it was in the 50s in the film, maybe 50s or 60s. Um, everybody looks great. It literally feels like you're stepping back in time, if only for a couple hours there. Uh, it really makes a difference, especially with all the different cars in the film as well. That's That's always one where it's silly sometimes to imagine that a good clothing outfit and a car is enough to convince an audience. But here I was thoroughly convinced Barbie would probably be my best costume design. I think just as far as replicating so many of the iconic Barbie designs, how they were used throughout the film. It's just tons of fun. It's eye popping, visually appealing. It just, I mean, Barbie was a great time. That's probably 
where Barbie's going to get the most love from me as far as my best of lists go. Loved the movie. Have watched it multiple times since. It's just a competitive year. But costumes, they nailed it. Napoleon, they did a great job with the costumes as well. Oppenheimer, very similar. Um, that historical period dressing, you know, I'm like, they just nailed it. It sets a serious tone for everything, and it completely embeds you in that world. For that reason, they were great. And then poor things, you know, just like the uh, makeup and hair design flows really well together. The costuming goes with it. You've got big poofy dresses, incredible cummerbunds, and I can't even think of the right word for the ruffled shirts that men wear. But, you know, there's tons of that. Just great stuff. Great stuff. Production design, Barbie. Probably my winner. So there we go. Barbie gets a couple. Making the Dream Houses. Ken's Mojo Dojo Casa House. Barbie traveling between the worlds. It's funny. It's enjoyable. It's believable in a kind of tongue-in-cheek sense. Um, you know, I think that Poor Things is probably somewhere where a lot of people would go with this as well. Just because they had some pretty funky futuristic set design it doesn't quite make my list because i would throw the creator in there i think working with the real sets really helps but everything they created as far as aiding that production just works incredibly effectively i think that uh, napoleon is going to be another one of those with great production design selling that time period in france and some of these grand halls and on these battlefields i mean it's just it massively impressive work. And so many times throughout Napoleon, I was just like, this is ridiculous that they were able to recreate that. Um, Oppenheimer creating all the different setups for the Trinity tests. Um, insanely impressive different production design, just in the courtroom scenes as well. And how they're utilizing space. I thought really aided the film. Well, and then I would also shout out rebel moon as my fifth slot building an entire village for the planet of Velt, I think was a pretty cool way to go. Feels very believable when you're in that town. And a lot of the locations do have a lot of actual real settings around them. Um, and so I think that's another thing that always really helps when you're selling this film. I think sometimes sci-fi, you want to think it should be all like shiny and crazy and futuristic looking, but in a lot of cases, you know, I'm like, maybe there are those worlds that are like that. And then there's some that are far more simple or far more industrial. And I think they really hit a lot of those on the head pretty well with that. Moving along to our best original song. Look at that. Barbie gets more love. You got Dance the Night, Dua Lipa. You've also got Barbie, What Was I Made For by Billie Eilish. Dreamin' Wild, When a Dream is Beautiful from Donnie and Nancy Emerson from uh, the film Dreamin' Wild, which I really loved. It's a shout out to uh, Washington filmmaking as well. Not a Washington film director, but highlighting a story from Washington State. The Emerson Brothers, incredible music. Just a really, really cool story about discovering a band years later in the advent of streaming and then coming back to this high school magic that they kind of created with this album that wasn't necessarily lost in time, but just hadn't found an audience yet. Just really, really great stuff. Uh, theater camp, camp isn't home. Theater camp was one of the best mockumentary style comedies of the year. As someone who's done tons of theater, it definitely spoke to me in a lot of ways, but the original music in the movie is so much fun. It's funny. It's poignant. It is absolutely a feel good movie. It is also going to make you laugh a ton. So I think that's a must watch. 
Um, and then Wonka, a world of your own. Timothy Chalamet really surprised me. Maybe he's not the greatest vocalist in terms of the strength, but he has this emotional resonance in his tone when he's singing that really won me over. Wonka was another big surprise for me that I really didn't think I would like as much as I did. And so Timothy Chalamet, I'm like, the pipes worked. He did very well. And that's, I mean, that song definitely stood out to me as far as the year went. Barbie danced the night. Dua Lipa played that song more than any other song from a movie last year. So that's, that's gotta be it. Dua Lipa's our girl. So we're going to give her that one for our best original score. We've got Barbie from Mark Ronson and Andrew Wyatt. Barbie had a great story. It was killer. So many. I'm like, you could literally nominate five Barbie songs probably for the Oscars, and most people would let it fly. The Boy and the Heron from Joe Hisayashi. Great. Hayao Miyazaki films are always, always pleasant to watch and listen to, if only for the colored pencil, almost come-to-life water painting animation paired with just incredible orchestral and symphonic melodies. They do a beautiful job, and that is no exception here. Oppenheimer would be my score of the year from Ludwig Jorensen. He just has been on a roll. This man, since Black Panther, did Tenet with Christopher Nolan, which is an incredibly kinetic and just like super engaging soundtrack. Oppenheimer, can you hear the music? I think I have no other song have I seen used in different edits and different things online this year. It's absolutely the score of the year. Saltburn, though, I would say. Gives it a run for its money with Anthony Willis. Really enjoyed that kind of classical take on a uh, different thriller kind of mystery slant. Uh, then the Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse from Daniel Pemberton. Thought that was another really standout different score. There's so many powerful moments, both with an incredible script that are also heightened by incredible music to pair. But Oppenheimer takes the best original score. Now we've got our best animated feature. And now I think is kind of where we're going to start ranking some of this. It was a good year for animation as far as what I saw. At number five of my animated list would probably be the Super Mario Bros. movie. It was serviceable. It was fun at times. As a fan of Mario, who's played most of the games, who knows most of these characters, it was disappointing that especially with all the rich music they have from decades of video games, it was just kind of a cash in on like, oh, what pop music can we try to like repopulate with this film? So that was a little disappointing. And, you know, a lot of that kind of felt forced. Was not huge on the Bowser Peach song. Just thought that was kind of silly. And like, it's fun to kind of play around with the characters. I don't know. Largely, it just felt like they could have done more with Mario. I'm sure kids enjoyed it. It's fun enough. I enjoyed what they did with Peach. Peach was awesome. Um, Chris Pratt was fine as the voice of Mario. It was nothing special. This is why you get good voice actors, though. This is why people literally are voice actors, and there are people who are live-action actors, you know? And so Chris Pratt's doing Garfield, and Chris Pratt's doing something else, and it's just like, that, I don't think people want that. You know, Kevin Hart's been a rare exception where, you know, his voice is kind of goofy enough that, like, kids really like it, too. But, by and large, Chris Pratt needs to stop voicing things. That needs to stop being, you know, let's put all these big name actors in here and take away from actually talented voice actors whose whole job it is is to do animation. I digress. But moving right along, 
after that, I would say probably Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. No, no, we're going to flip that. We're going to go the Boy and the Heron. Boy and the Heron is going to be our number four. I always appreciate what Hayao Miyazaki does. I think his stories can sometimes be really focused and other times he loves to go off. The Japanese narrative structure is very different than our American structure, so I always take that with a grain of salt when watching. I don't think I took away as much from this film as I did other films of his. There's plenty to enjoy and spectate. Um, There's fire in the movie more than anything is actually really impressive. There's tons of moments that really stood out to me and have stuck with me, but maybe not my best work of his. And so for that reason, I think it's going to be at uh, number four, number three, I would probably give to the teenage mutant Ninja turtles, mutant mayhem. Had way more fun with that than I thought I would. I've always enjoyed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There have been different versions throughout my time that I've really enjoyed. Um, I've enjoyed to varying degrees the Michael Bay live action stuff, but they felt like older turtles. You know, it was a little more mature. So to have this go back to real teenagers playing these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and letting them be teenagers, I think worked wonders the animation style is kind of similar to what they were doing with across the spider-verse and the spider-verse movies so it feels a little more eye-popping in that comic sense i think it works really well i think it's tons of fun super funny very surprising and it really makes me want to see more of these turtles and so i was like that's probably a good sign coming out of there and number two for our animated films i would go elemental uh there's some people who just uh, maybe they're weakening on Pixar. I was for a while, so I kind of get it. Uh, but I really thought Elemental was a good return for Pixar as far as a compelling drama and romance at its core, which is something they haven't really done. But then also this immigrant story underneath all of that, I think it tackles so many different things in a lot of really great ways, just as far as family and relationships and what you feel maybe you owe to them or what you feel you can do because of what they might think or judge. I was just really impressed by it. It really has a lot of heart, really has a lot to say. Watching it again only kind of reconfirmed those feelings for me. It's a solid number two, if only behind amazing, uh, you know, Spider-Verse. Come on. I mean, across the Spider-Verse, it's got to be the best animated film of the year. It's one of the best films of the year. Um, I'm just going to say narrowly I'm missing my top 10, which was a toss-up. It's been it's It's been tough. But definitely the best animated movie of the year. What they're doing with the Spider-Verse saga is unparalleled. The stories that they're telling with Miles Morales within the canon of all these different Spider-People is just incredible. And it really is the coolest look at telling these big, bold comic book stories for film audiences and managing to do it in a way that continues to advance the genre that continues to change the game as far as animation goes, but then also brings people into a familiar story with all of these different, really compelling new twists and takes on it. So Spider-Verse, undoubtedly best animated movie of the year. And now we'll also go into the uh, the cinematography. That's probably the last thing. You know, this is one I've been heavily debating. Personally, my best cinematography would go to... Uh, how to blow up a pipeline. And it this is one I've kind of grappled with because this wasn't a year where cinematography totally 
took me like Emmanuel Lebeski's does sometimes where it's just like, wow, watching the Revenant or Birdman. And this is just unparalleled stuff. I mean, what they're able to capture with their lens sometimes is second to none of Roger Deakins. You know, I don't think that there was something this year that quite grabbed me like films in the years past, but how to blow up a pipeline stood out to me. It feels grainy. It feels, I want to say it feels low budget. I mean, it feels like they're using actual film. I don't believe they were, but for whatever reason, the cinematography just heightens the intensity around so many of these situations of these people who have next to no idea what they're doing as far as actually creating and planting explosives. And I just, it works so well in moments when they're out in the desert, out in Texas, but different moments too, when you're at different oil plants and you're looking at all of these pollutants across our country. And we know that they're across the world. Uh, but I don't know. It just, it stuck with me from the moment the film started. I was like, Oh, this isn't an older film, is it? But it just, it works. It works so well. Visually, it stood out to me as the most aiding as far as telling a story went as well this year. Um, Oppenheimer, Hoyt Ben Hoytama, that would probably be my number two. The film just looks crisp, sensational. Shot on that 70 millimeter IMAX. If you were one of the few who were lucky to see it on that, I'm sure it looked even better. I got to see it in IMAX, not the 70 millimeter, but when it was just glorious. It was just peak filmmaking, um, just incredible attention to detail, to faces, to so much of this. I mean, so much of that storytelling is done through people's looks, their demeanors, and what they're able to capture in that film just continually heightens the importance of what they were doing, I think, as well. Creator would be a, a good nod for me as far as top five for cinematography. Greg Frazier, I mean, it's simple again in the sense that you know you're using location shooting so it's not like you're having to rely so much on visual effects but the meshing of the two felt so natural that when i was watching it it was like okay this feels like in a way it felt like the world of avatar where james cameron has created stuff that looks and feels believable and like it exists already in our world today and so watching the creator i was like kind of like district nine with neil blomkamp a lot of the robots and AI and different technologies there feels grounded in our world. It feels like, oh yeah, like this feels like it already exists. It feels like those Boston dynamic little robot dogs that we know already exist. Um, so I just, it was impressive in that degree. And I think that cinematography just meshed perfectly with what they were doing with the, uh, with the effects in that film. I would say Saltburn, just another great looking movie this year. One that stood out from use of colors to imagery, everything they were doing there. It was very avant-garde, but I think it works, especially for the style of story that they're telling and the twists and turns in that one. Um, it always keeps you guessing and they use imagery really well throughout the whole thing. Um, so a great example of where I think cinematography steps in to help tell a side of that story as well. And then I would say the zone of interest would be my last cinematography roundout. Maybe not the best looking movie of the year, but as far as what you do with a camera, the importance of how you use it and telling a story without needing any actors even is incredible. Keeping that film trained behind the wall, unable to show us Auschwitz, but what we hear on the other side, I mean, it is a one, two 
gut punch combo that's devastating to watch and to listen to, but really shows you how easy it is for people to turn a blind eye to evil. And, you know, I think it just, especially for our times today, I think it's important. I think it's essential. It is another way to sort of tell the story of the Holocaust in a way that we haven't seen before. And also really put into perspective, not only just how horrible things were, but what people gave up the things that they just so blindly agreed with or went along with just because, oh, well, you know, the rules are the rules and the Jews need to be burned. I mean, it's just horrible stuff, horrible stuff. But the cinematography really drives home just how horrible it was. Um, and, and, you know, I hate to say that it's essential, but, you know, a lot of things are uncomfortable that are essential in our world. And so I think it's best that you kind of confront them head on like that. So now we move into uh, the juicy categories. And we're going to work our way up from adapted screenplay, my top five. I've been toying around with my five slot. I, you know, the one shout out I'm going to give is to Blackberry, a movie that could have made other lists, other top fives for me. One that stood out just in how it tells this story of the early 2000s of this tech world. It's a personal one to me that because I grew up in a space adjacent to this mobile phone world and everything, like I knew a lot of the story going in, really enjoyed kind of how they showed it all. But it just, you know, when I think about it compared to the social network, they're not similar movies, maybe a similar vein, but I just, there were a few more things I think that stood out. So my five slot would go to Godzilla minus one. It was tough. It was tough. And, you know, in a lot of ways, this Godzilla story, it's tough when it comes to adapted because yes, Godzilla exists and we're using a character that exists. So it cannot technically be an original screenplay, but the story of a kamikaze pilot finding his will to live, fighting not only against this impossible creature, but feelings of shame, disappointment, and loss. The movie just completely caught everybody off guard, I think, with how much humanity was left in this story. Uh, I mean, it was just the biggest, best surprise for me of any movie this year, truthfully, um, with some of the most compelling characters of any film this year. Um, incredible, incredible story and a testament to how much a great story matters especially when you're telling this grand creature or superhero film, whatever. Having a great story is the core of everything. Killers of the Flower Moon would be my number four. What Martin Scorsese is able to do adapting this novel is nothing short of impressive. The film is like a history lesson at three and a half hours. You certainly will come away learning a lot how they tell the story, how these characters interact sometimes is really upsetting and the casualness of how people talk about disposing of Native Americans. Um, but again, it is there to emphasize just how horrible people were and how little regard people had for Native Americans in the Osage and just how, again, disgusting and horrible we were to people who already had it worse than anyone else um, who were there before us. Um, just a powerful, powerful movie. Um, and a great, great screenplay. Oppenheimer would probably be my number three. 
Christopher Nolan, I've flipped through the book that it's based on American Prometheus and that Christopher Nolan turned all of that into this compelling three hour courtroom freaking science drama is incredible. Um, there was not a dull moment in that film and that is largely due to a script that keeps you going, that propels the story, that brings in all these interesting figures through history, teaches you, shows you. I mean, it's just filmmaking at its top, but the screenplay truthfully is what gets it there because that is where everything goes and writing it. I think in the first person, it was really interesting how Chris Nolan did that. He is just the dude's a master. He's a genius. I think Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse would probably be my second adapted screenplay choice. I think, you know, this film is hard to compete with that first Spider-Verse film, but they did it. They created a story that was even more compelling that raises the emotional stakes that if you know anything about the Spider-Man character really puts things in a bind. Um, also banking on the older characters from that first movie and how they've evolved over time as well. It just at every turn, there's so much drama, so much emotion, so much power in the storytelling. It just stood out to me as something that is very rare to get, especially in that comic book world. But my number one adapted screenplay has got to be Origin by Ava DuVernay, based on the novel by Isabel Wilkerson about the caste system, turning a film that is kind of a journalistic study across the world, learning all about these different systems and hierarchies of oppression in our own country and other countries, looking at finding links between American slavery and Jim Crow laws and Nazi Germany and what they were trying to do to the Jews, looking at India and the untouchables and the Dulits and how even beyond racism, you have people of the same nationality, of the same skin color, oppressing people of that same skin color. And this study, going beyond that, looking at humanity, looking at why we do this, looking at what it's dependent on as far as keeping these systems alive, and looking at the people who benefit at the very top from the fact that most of the people in the middle don't ever want to reach that bottom level. Um, it educational doesn't even begin to cut it the film the script everything is just so powerful um it was a movie i knew i was already going to go into i think enjoying ava duvernay is a powerful filmmaker and everything she has touched leaves me just with so many thoughts so much knowledge you know so many feelings in your heart origin is no different her adaptation here is incredible. It is moving, powerful beyond what you can imagine. And just like there's moments that are just like ingrained in my mind. And it's frustrating because this movie probably won't come out for weeks for people. Uh, but it's one that I want people to watch and talk about because everything and how it's put into perspective, it just, it's like, this is what people need to see. This is what people need to hear to understand our world better and to understand these different systems. So Origin, it's got to be my best adapted screenplay. For our best original screenplays, my number five slot goes to May, December by Sammy Birch and Alex Machanik. This kind of loose adaptation of the Mary Kay Letourneau stuff it more than examines, obviously, the creepiness, the uncomfortableness of 30-something-year-old woman having sex at a child with a 12-year-old boy 
Um, but then looking years later and expanding and exploring this dynamic and do you address that there's weirdness? Is that just been business as usual since you guys got together and there's multiple children involved and in the script, Natalie Portman's character is a young Hollywood starlet trying to study this role, trying to study this woman and get into, you know, it's, it's this weird study and fascination that I think the people in today have with media with these stories that are so ludicrous and absurd and horrifying that you obviously can't turn away and you have to look and you have to learn the films kind of campy in a way that, you know, it's funny. I've said in an uncomfortable way, in that way that sometimes you can't help but laugh. Cause you're like, Oh my God, this is so weird. Like this is horrifying. That is the feeling of this film. So many times Charles Melton is incredible. Julianne Moore is too good in this role, but God, it just benefits from a really fantastic and engaging screenplay. Fair Play would be my number four screenplay for original screenplay. Chloe DeMont has crafted not only this business drama, but a really interesting look at not even a crumbling romance, but jealousy, 21st century, this feeling of inadequacy, this feeling of, oh, you know, is it okay if my girlfriend has a better job than I do or makes more money than I do? This examination of insecurity. Um, this case, it happens to be in men especially, but just looking at how a woman rises through the ranks in her work, how she's treated because of it, how she's looked at because of it, what's assumed because of it versus, well, I'm a guy and I'm working hard and I'm, you know, I probably didn't do what she did to get there. It just, it is like biting stuff sometimes. It's really really good interesting on the business side really interesting on the dramatic relationship side it goes places you don't expect it to terrific writing uh, the holdovers would probably be my number three written by david hemmingson the alexander payne film follows this young boy at a boarding school who's got to stay over break for winter because he can't go home to his parents or they are doing something where they don't want him it is this exploration of not only this troubled kid, but this troubled teacher who, I mean, he's curmudgeon -y. His vocabulary is incredible, uh, but he understands that there is a lack of hard work, especially with a lot of these wealthy kids who just kind of get this great education in the past while so many people, maybe more deserving and harder working, don't have those opportunities. Really, really touching look. You know, it's, it's a holiday film almost in some ways as well but really puts a lot of things into perspective just as far as what people should be grateful for how we should not be coddling people just because someone's dad's going to donate all this money doesn't mean that they get this pass that other people don't even get or an opportunity they don't even get um really really great stuff really funny really smart um, and just so touching and heartfelt in ways that I didn't expect going into it. I really should have a running list of like most surprising movies of the year because the holdovers was one that once I left the theater, I was just like, wow, I was moved. I was just smiling from ear to ear. And I just thought what a great, great story. Past lives would be my number two for original screenplay. Celine song directing her first feature, I had the opportunity to see this at the Seattle International Film Festival with Song there in person to showcase it and then do a Q&A afterwards, um, partially based and influenced on her life. Um, 
this is a story of two people who as children you know felt this connection to one another and after moving away thousands of miles finding one another and reconnecting decades later and this impossible worldly feeling of being drawn to someone knowing someone feeling like there is a part of me that is yours and has been for years and you can't quite explain it it is just an incredible meditation on love emotion how we view connections in our world you know past lives this feeling of you know we have met before maybe we'll meet again maybe it's not to be in this universe here but somewhere else along the line in time our souls and our spirits will connect it is just really beautiful stuff complex in the sense that like oh you know she's got a husband and this guy comes back into her life who was once this great love when she was younger and there's these complicated intricate feelings that are real that people have and it just handles everything so delicately and so beautifully um, and it just tells a truly truly unique story one that just completely blew me away when i saw it earlier this year my number one original screenplay though has got to go to the anatomy of a fall justine Triet, what she crafted here in this investigative courtroom emotional couples drama is just phenomenal. This examination of relationships, of everyday life, putting that in the spotlight after there's this death. You know, you can't quite clear this woman as far as no wrongdoing or foul play, but just starting to tear through all the bits and pieces of their lives and their relationship, trying to find justifications for the defense, for the, uh, not the offense, but, you know, the attorneys. I can't think of the right word for it right now. But I just, the characters are all compelling. Swan Arlod's uh, lawyer, fantastic. So many well-written characters. So many frustratingly great characters in this movie as well. Triet has just, I mean, I, this was a movie that as soon as I walked out, could not stop thinking about it. Was like, I mean, I caught it on the last day it was playing in my market. And I was so pissed off afterwards because I was like, I need to see this again. And it's going to be months until I can see this again. Um, it is just incredible, incredible stuff. We're going to move right along to our top five supporting actresses of the year. Emily Blunt would be my number five for Oppenheimer. I think she kind of saves the best for last in that film, uh, especially in that interrogation sequence with Jason Clark. She really turns on the acting jets there. Incredible performance. She gives one of the best stares at the very end of the film, everybody who's seen it knows what I'm talking about. Thought she was great in the movie. Wasn't enough to like totally top a few other performances, but when she turned it on there at the end, it was like, all right, she came to play. Rachel McAdams would probably be my number four for Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Her loving mother, who's in this impossible position of trying to give her child these different relationships she deserves but not wanting a relationship with people who don't deserve to have her in their life. It's just beautiful stuff. She has always been a favorite actress of mine for forever. Um, she's just adorable. She's incredible. Um, every role she tackles with such sincerity, and you feel that here. Uh, the love she has for her family, the wrestling she does with her faith and just feeling like, what is the right thing to do? I just thought 
It was really compelling. She does a beautiful job in the film, I think. America Ferrera would be my number three. If anybody's getting Barbie love in the cast, I know people go to Margot and Ken, but it's America Ferrera because nobody delivered a better monologue this year than she did talking about how impossible it is to be a woman in the world we live in, not just today, but as it's always been. Um, she as this mother struggling to have this connection with her daughter, who's growing and growing through changes. I thought was, you know, instantly relatable, not being a mother or having kids or anything, you know, it's like I was a kid once though. And whether you've experienced this or seen it, you certainly know that. And I feel like the older you get, the more you realize like, Oh man, when I was younger and I said that, I'm sure it wasn't a big deal to me. Or I said that out of spite and I'm sure this really hurt my mom or my parent or whomever it was. And so I just think she brings so much sincerity in this performance. She brings in so much real world influence as far as what moms feel. And I just, she just nails it. She is so good. She is a terrific actress. And I was just so like everyone I knew that was going to be in this movie. She was the one that I was not expecting to just totally take the whole film and run with it. But she does. She is phenomenal. Devine Joy Randolph would be my number two best supporting female performance of the year from the holdovers what she brings to that story really rounds out. I think the emotional center for what they're discussing, uh, but really drives home to this whole other subplot in this idea of, you know, while so many people just get this pass and can have someone write a check and get them into wherever they want. There are people who have to spend their whole lives working for the same opportunities that so many get very casually. Um, and this idea that, Oh, you know, None of the Barton boys here would ever go to war. You know, our boys are too smart. Their futures are too bright. But that also banks on the fact that a lot of them have money and a lot of these families have money. And you've got Curtis, her son, who did not have the money despite how hard she worked. The one kid that does get drafted. The one kid that does die. And what she brings in that performance is just heartbreaking at times. It's beautiful at times. She... This is, the I think, the first thing that I've ever seen her in. And just as far as going toe-to-toe with the other leads in the film, I just, like, she is sensational. Um, she's going to bring you to tears. It just a beautiful, beautiful performance. Only to be outmatched, number one. My number one best supporting female performance of the year goes to Danielle Brooks for The Color Purple making her transition from the Broadway musical to the Broadway to the musical movie adaptation of this story. She just floored me. Not only is her musical talent phenomenal. I mean, she, there's no doubt she's talented. What she brings to the story in her hilarity and her ability to take unspeakable abuse and, you know, be subject to embarrassment and ridicule in ways that is just unfathomable. Um, the emotion she brings to an already like emotionally charged story. She's just incredible. It is a performance that since I saw it, I was like, all right, that's it for me. I was like, that's it. I, it, there's so many beautiful, powerful performances in the color purple, but Danielle Brooks, I mean, it just jumped out at me. 
it. When people watch this movie, I think they will feel it. I think they will understand it. I mean, Fantasia Barino is incredible. Granted, she's not the supporting actress in the film. Taraji P. Henson would probably battle uh, for that spot, and she's phenomenal. She's so good. But Danielle Brooks, there was nothing like that. The addition of her presence in that story or her interpretation of the character blew me away. And it just provided some of this lightness to this story where there was so much dark and it just, yeah, I mean, she is sensational, truly sensational. I hope that she wins the Academy award. Moving on to our top five supporting actors at number five, Glenn Howerton for Blackberry, Dennis Reynolds of it's always sunny. Go serious. Still funny. The script in Blackberry really does him a lot of favors, but what Howerton brings to the role is an unmatched intensity that is just perfect. Perfect for that technology era, the smartphone, early smartphone world, this divide between a guy who can do the business side but doesn't get the tech side, knows how to get things done but doesn't speak their language. It was just awesome. He's so funny. It From the beginning of the year, I was like, all right, that's going to be in my top five for sure. For sure. And film after film, it stayed there. He is just awesome. Such a funny, great performance. I would love to see him nominated. I don't know if it's going to happen. But show him some love. Watch Blackberry. At number four, Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer. A lot of people have been saying it's so great to see him doing the serious thing again after so many years of Marvel. Sherlock Holmes and a couple other deals. And while I definitely am with people, I'm like, he's great. It's an incredible role. So nice to see him returning to some serious work. There's still some of those Robert Downey Jr. isms in there. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it was super compelling. Really enjoyed just how spiteful he was. And, and he's so good with his face and how he can show his emotions. Uh, he was great. But then you get Dominic Sessa, who's my number three pick of the year. First film role comes out of nowhere and goes toe-to-toe with Paul Giamatti and the holdovers. The kid is just funny. He's got natural timing. He plays an emotional side of things so well, but this tough outer attitude, you know, he's not the biggest guy, so part of that role really does depend on that, like, mentally, I am superior to you, but physically, maybe not. And I'm going to say a lot of shit, and I'm going to talk a lot of shit because I have shit going on in my own life. Um, And it's incredibly relatable, but Sessa is just awesome his delivery is incredible he just i mean it was just so like so many of the performances in that movie were surprising the movie itself was surprising to me but he i mean this is like what a breakout role looks like he was phenomenal and number two personally i would go with swan arlon for uh anatomy of a fall this is one of those deals where i'm like i don't know when the academy regulations or rules work you know it's a French film that certainly will have nominations for the American audience and whatnot. He, so much of the film works obviously because of Sandra Hewler's performance, but you do not get that without his lawyer foil to her. And whether it's the preparation for the case, rather than being the aggressive, like, oh, I'm you know blanking, of course, on the name of the other guy. But rather than being the one accusing her, coming at her with all these incredibly hard questions, he comes in with reasoning, different emotional takes, different deconstructions than the defense had. And it just, I don't know, that movie works so well because of the two of them, because both of them are not only acting their asses off, but they are 
keeping the elements of this story moving and keeping you still guessing, wondering, did she do it? Did she not? Even though we're fighting for the fact that she did not, that means this other thing as well. And he walks this tight line of, you know, I don't want to overbear you with what we are fighting for, but if you're claiming innocence, then that probably means that he took his life there or something, you know, and there's just a lot of complexity in the story and how they have to interact and how he has to kind of walk this line there. Just, he's terrific. He, each time I've watched the movie now, I grow even more fond of the performance. I think he is phenomenal. So many people in that film are phenomenal. But if I had a number one top five supporting actor performance this year, it goes to Charles Melton for May, December. This stunted, almost physically and emotionally man all these years later after being in this abusive, you know, we're going to call it abusive relationship, being a 12 year old, being in a relationship with a 30 year old woman, you know, it's clear in the film that as an adult, the character still doesn't totally know how wrong all of that was and hasn't really had a chance to discuss how long, how wrong all of that was. Um, and so a lot of Melton's superiority in this performance is just in his subtlety and these moments where this tall man is hunched and just has no confidence, no spine, but has missed out on so many things in life too, that most kids experience as well. There's so many just heartbreaking moments with him as he doesn't have these social cues as there's things he doesn't know. The film is obviously a standout for me, but that performance, even against Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, who are doing incredible work, he just, Oh, I mean that his performance solely is what really sends the whole thing to the next level. Just understanding the visual side of what that abuse looks like. And for whatever people may think about, oh, he was a young kid having sex with an older woman, man. That's awesome. No, it's not awesome. It's not at all. It's inappropriate. It's awful. Watching this movie, especially seeing his performance, just shows you no. It's horrifying stuff. Incredible performance, though. For our top five best actresses of the year, at number five, I've got Phoebe Dynever for Fair Play. She fired on all cylinders. She is quick as a whip. She was great with the technical and, you know, I would say uh, accounting money managerial aspects that the role demanded. Um, but she was just so freaking sharp with her tongue as far as all these comebacks to Alden Ehrenreich's bitter and jealous character navigating celebrating her own success for her hard work while trying to keep up a relationship where this guy felt inferior because she got the she got the promotion that he wanted um she just there's so much emotion that she brings into it so much confusion just genuine like are you really upset with me like I was ready to support you and now you're not going to support me I mean it just she's killer the movie is awesome it benefits from a great script but she and Alden Ehrenreich, phenomenal together and against one another. But she, it was a standout one, a Netflix one that really stood out to me among this year as well. But Dynever was just awesome. She is so good in the film. At number four, I would have Lily Gladstone from The Killers of the Flower Moon. I think I would probably have her higher on this list. She was a little more involved in the movie. A lot of the role relies on, obviously, this 
idea that, you know, she's being pretty much kept sick, uh, bedridden, fighting this diabetes. But you see throughout the film how much loss she experiences. And in so many of those moments, it's just your heart drops um, as you understanding the reality of what really happened to the Osage nation and to members of her own family from members of her own family. And it's just heartbreaking stuff. She conveys so much of that in a way that just embeds it into your mind. Uh, but even in the moments where she's sick and in bed, it just, you know, she plays it up so well in the sense that you see how almost not a person she is when they're keeping her drugged up. And it's just, it's a great performance and a really great movie. Greta Lee would be my number three for past lives playing that complex character who yes, has this husband whom she loves and connects with in so many different ways. And then having this past connection that feels like through space and time, these two have been linked trying to find their way back to one another. Um, it is just, you know, I, I think I mentioned it earlier. The the way that it's handled is really beautiful. It's not handled in an inappropriate matter of like, oh, well, I'm just going to go cheat on my husband or I'm going to do whatever. But it really explores these billions of thoughts we have as humans a day. And, you know, not necessarily that we act on them, but understanding and living with those feelings and understanding, too, that, yes, maybe life is deeper than we imagine sometimes. And maybe these are connections that have gone through different phases of life reborn again and again looking for one another all these different beliefs people have um, but her performance she's just fantastic and the grace she has to navigate the genuine love and confusion in these situations it's a performance that's definitely stuck with me throughout the year and number two i would go with ingenue ellis taylor for origin so much of the film works, yes, because of the incredible script and basis for that script and direction from Ava DuVernay, but Ellis Taylor, everything rides on her delivery, on her investigations and these interviews that she does and how she educates the audience as well as herself when she's making these discoveries. And it's it was such an interesting one because I didn't expect the film to be journalistic and um, investigative in that way. Like I'm tracking down things. I'm going to be interviewing people. It felt very real. Like you're actually watching a real interview at times. And I think because of that and the seriousness of how they take it, the conversations sometimes catch you off guard and the conversations are sometimes really intense, but they need to be. And what you gain through those is just incredible. And Ellis Taylor in her interactions with John Bernthal, with Nisi Nash, with the different people's stories she's telling, she just does an unbelievable job. Um, she is just, it's such an incredible and powerful performance uh, from a movie that is one of the most powerful and incredible of the year. My top performance though, and number one, has got to be Sandra Huller for uh, Anatomy of a Fall. A lot of people are giving her her flowers for the zone of interest, which she's great in incredibly cold and calculated in that film and just awful, but incredible in that role. But anatomy of a fall, everything works because of her, her delivery, her interpretation of the material, defending herself, defending this relationship though, and finding ways to discuss some really hard, horrible truths of their relationship, but then still highlight that love and the care they had for one another 
everything with her son and the disability that he was facing and how she interprets it. Uh, it just, it's a performance that I, some maybe think is a little normal. It's not a showy performance and it very well could have been in different moments, but what she does instead is bring so much humanity into it and brings so much complexity as far as relationships go, as marriages go, as life goes, and how two people interpret different things. Um, she's just incredible. And the movie works because everything rests on her shoulders. And even at the end, if you're feeling still like, I don't totally know what I believe, you know, she's convinced me one way perhaps, but God, she is just phenomenal. That, that was such a, such a fantastic movie. For our top five best actors, at number five, Alden Ehrenreich for Fair Play, playing across Phoebe Dynever. He's just so bitter, so jealous. Reaches levels you know guys have reached before and says horrible, shitty things to her just because he's bitter. It's so nice to see him getting work consistently after being shafted as Han Solo. But uh, but no, he it's a performance that both of them stuck with me. They just work so well across one another. Great script. He's just such a dick, but it's awesome. He's so good at it. He's so good at it. And again, the script goes places that get crazy at the end. You got to watch it. It's just great. Barry Keoghan would probably be my number four for Saltburn. I said it before. He's just a little weasel sometimes. And I mean that in a really good way because... He is so capable of being conniving and dastardly and malicious. And then he can also play a total sweetheart and lovable. And, you know, you're really feeling bad for the guy. And Saltburn just fluctuates between both of those moods where you're like, I just I feel for him, man. And then you're like, wait a minute, you little rat bastard. You, he's just, he's so good. He's been on a great streak these last few years. I expect to see more incredible things from him in the future. Paul Giamatti would be my number three for the holdovers. An incredible role for an incredible actor who has seemingly done it all. This curmudgeon professor has so many layers to him, so much depth. Um, Giamatti just eats up the dialogue like no other person can. This intellectual, you know, almost oh, intellectual battering almost of these kids who don't even know that they're being made fun of in some ways but also you know, I mean that's part of the whole deal itself this is a teacher who sees that yeah most of these kids don't care to try they think that dad's just going to pay for everything and they'll be all right they can flunk this they can get a bad grade and they're still going to go to a great school but he is there to weed those kids out and it's we're glad for it he just does an incredible job my number two, who was almost my number one, undoubtedly the best performance he's ever given is Zac Efron for The Iron Claw. This is a transformative performance for him, both physically, emotionally. It is a devastating story, so much of so that rests on his shoulders. He tells this story of he and his brothers phenomenally. He will reduce you to tears more than a few times. Happy tears and sad tears. Zach Efron, I've just always liked this guy. Everything he's done film-wise has been pretty interesting to say the least. Even if you don't like the movie, he's charming. Obviously, he's good-looking, but he's got a great personality. This is the most serious thing he's ever done. Uh, you 
feel the dedication to the role and to telling the story and doing it justice. It is a heartbreaking story and he is pitch perfect in this movie. Um, were it not for my number one, he would be that number one, but Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer has to take that one slot. He is an actor who's been working behind the scenes on the sides on television at the forefront for so long. It is so great to see him get this shot to lead a film. What an undertaking that was, what a responsibility it was for two plus hours. He commands our attention, takes us into this world of creating this atom bomb Murphy's performance is nothing short of brilliant. Um, he becomes the character completely. The fact that, I mean, I mean, again, for so many reasons, that three-hour film in anyone else's hands would not work. The subject matter, everything, would be far less compelling. But Murphy's dedication is unlike anything I've ever seen, from him especially before. He completely deserves every accolade that he gets for this film. I hope he wins the Academy Award it is awesome to see all these years of collaborations with Chris Nolan paying off for this. Top five film editors will blow through this one real quick. More indicative of the best film of the year. Kind of gives you an idea of where things will shake out for me. At number five, Godzilla minus one. Number four will go The Holdovers. Number three, Anatomy of a Fall. Two, Killers of the Flower Moon. And number one, Oppenheimer. While not necessarily being my top five films there, I'll just touch on Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon at the one and two. Thelma Schoonmaker for the Killers of the Flower Moon, just like what she did with The Wolf of Wall Street. Her editing is uncomparable. The way that she's able to tell these stories and keep them tight, give them enough rain and rope when they need to, it's unbelievable. And the same with Oppenheimer for Jennifer Lame, taking an insurmountable story and information and putting it into a tight three hours, which just filled that I you know just filled up that IMAX film canister. Incredible, incredible work. My top five directors of the year: number five, Alexander Payne for the Holdovers. This guy can take small stories and make them feel huge. Um, you know, he did it with Nebraska. He's done it with Sideways about Schmidt. As a director who often is directing other people's stories, I think he works perfect in that wheelhouse um the holdovers works on so many levels because of the tenderness he gives to it the tenderness and time he gives to these characters who maybe never always got that look or that second shot that they actually deserve um it is just a beautiful moving film and alexander payne just you know like the descendants before this it is a human story that just sits with your heart and is unforgettable. Uh, Justine Triet would be my number four for Anatomy of a Fall. Everything she does in that film works from the opening steel drums blasting for what feels like 10 straight minutes. That movie forces you to think in so many different ways. It brings up so many interesting looks at love and relationships and how we make our time, the sacrifices you make for your family, Looking at, am I a bad person or have I just done bad things? The movie is sensational. Undoubtedly one of my favorite of the year and I think benefits so well because of the writer and director at the helm of it. I mean, she truly created that story and saw it through to the very end. It's just incredible. Takashi Yamazaki would be my number three director of the year. Godzilla Minus One wrote the screenplay, directed the film, took it back to its roots, 
back at the end of World War II, Yamazaki focused on telling a story first, having all these implications in the background of rebuilding Tokyo, the damage and fallout from this war. Um, it just, Godzilla Minus One is literally, I mean, we're going to get there, one of the best movies of the year. Just top to bottom. And Takashi Yamazaki leads the charge in a film that honors veterans, that shows so much about people's will to live, that shows so much about what connection means to us, and is also just one of the, if not best, Godzilla movies of all time. And you can quote me on that. Number two, Ava DuVernay. She, nobody makes movies like she does. Nobody is telling the stories that she does, especially about blacks and African Americans. Um, the focus of her stories is often rooted in reality, rooted in real things that have happened. And with her storytelling, she is able to put so many things, I think, into perspective for the broadest possible audiences to both feel something emotionally, to resonate with the stories that they're seeing and feeling, but then to also understand more of our history as a country, as a species, the work that she does is just, I mean, it's next level. It No director, man, woman, any race, whatever, I'm like, she, the projects she's doing and how she carries them out is just unbelievable. It is educational. It is groundbreaking. It is moving in the deepest human ways possible. And every time I watch a film of hers, I come away a changed person um, in just so many ways. And the way I look at the world is different. The way I look at so many things changes and she challenges so many beliefs that we hold dear as humans. Sometimes we don't know any better and she forces us to be better, to look at a different way of being better. And Origin just completely captivated me this year. Top five directors, number one though. It's going to be Christopher Nolan, a man uh, many will say, and I would agree with his overdue for Oscar glory, um, consistently making challenging films for audiences, for stories. I mean, he just, he never makes it easy on himself, which I love. Um, and the stories he can tell, the effectiveness at how he can tell them, the casts he can put together, the productions, Top to bottom, nobody makes movies like Christopher Nolan. And he truly is one of the last few champions, obviously, of film, but telling stories on the grandest scales, telling stories entrenched in some of our history, but also really, I mean, he's just impressive. Technically, visually, he understands cinema and its language in a way that so many don't. When you watch a trailer, when you watch a movie of his, it is an experience like no other. And for Oppenheimer to be a three-hour film about science and courtroom drama and committees, science committees, I mean, I walked out of that movie changed. I mean, I walked out of that movie and I went and bought the book right away, which never happens. I don't read much anymore, but I was like, how did they make this? How did they make this so interesting? Christopher Nolan delivered on every level this year. And finally, thank you for bearing with us. We have our top 10 movies of the year. All of these movies, all of these performances I've talked about, you can find 99% of those reviews 
at NT Movie Reviews. So if anything catches your ear here, or if you're just kind of skimming along, listening along, all of those things are there. Check us out on all our podcast pages on YouTube. What you seek is out there. My number 10 film of the year, The Creator from Gareth Edwards. This film was just freaking awesome. The timely AI conversations going on now really lend to that. The Neil Blomkamp, District 9, Chappie style feel to it with the real location shooting. It's just awesome. $80 million. They made it look better than the most expensive films this year. It is an awesome sci-fi story. If you love sci-fi, there's no reason you should not check it out. At number nine, I would go Saltburn. Emerald Fennel freaking crafted something delicious and dastardly with this movie. And rewatching it again just proved how shocking in some ways it was and just how like evilly delightful it is sometimes too. There's not necessarily great characters in the movie as far as like being a good person goes, but especially rewatching it. It's interesting to see the way that people move and the way that people interact performances from top to bottom are terrific. The writing is sharp and biting in ways that, a lot of people maybe say American fiction was. I think this one maybe goes for a little bit more of the jugular. And for that reason, Saltburn found itself at my number nine. At number eight, we're talking Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese and what he was able to tell with the story of the Osage Native Americans. It's troubling. It is heartbreaking. It is beyond educational in some ways. Um, telling this story sort of through this gangster lens almost as well was really fascinating, but the way that he tells this story so effectively with the violence shows you the senselessness that so many people felt towards killing native Americans and how eager and willing people were to steal things from them, to rob them of their possessions, to come in and take that oil money, take the one thing that they really had, before taking everything else from them. Um, just a powerful, powerful movie. Three and a half hours doesn't feel like it, but it is nice to watch it at home and kind of chunk it up, I would say. But definitely stuck with me this year. Number seven, I would say May, December. One that musically, visually, story-wise, is just in your face on so many levels. Just crazy crazy on so many levels uh, an incredible script incredible performances really uncomfortable subject matter but how it handles it all is fascinating it works so effectively as a film and an entertaining film leaves you feeling all sorts of weird uncomfortable feelings but i think that's a good thing because there's a lot of weird uncomfortable stuff in our world that a lot of people are quick to overlook or I've said it before. It's like, oh, you know, an older woman going, I'm like, we would love an older woman's attention when we were young. And it's like, no, that when you see the result of predatory behavior like that and grooming, that's not pleasant. It's a cautionary tale. And this is a great cautionary tale too, of how obsessive people in the media can get too, and how much we try to justify things for people, you know, and that there was a, a long strand of time where people were like, you know, we can justify a lot of people's perversions and things and it's let's not look at it weirdly and it's like I mean, we can look at it weirdly here at number six how to blow up a pipeline i know this hasn't popped up too many other places on my awards here 
really benefits from a great ensemble where nobody really outshines the other. Um, I don't want to say a lot of no-name actors, but a lot of actors you probably and I probably hadn't seen before. But a human story, both of understanding what corporations and companies are doing to destroy our planet, the corners they're cutting as far as energy goes, and just the pollution that's out there. Um, and looking at all these different people from all across the country who all have some motivation one way or another against these natural gas and oil companies, against these groups who pollute. And, you know, I'm like, they all have really compelling personal reasons to want to risk their lives trying to makeshift, you know, make makeshift bombs to disrupt oil prices. And it just, the movie is so intense for a number of reasons, largely because these people don't know what they're doing. And it's the world we live in, in the sense of, Hey, well, if I can Google something, there's probably info out there. Uh, but this, but feeling so much in you that you are so compelled to do this um, and risk your life for it. I just, it's a really, really compelling story, nerve wracking, totally an edge of the seat. Like, Oh my God. Great soundtrack. Incredible cinematography. And number five, Anatomy of a Fall. I thought this film might be a little bit higher up on my list until I saw a few more movies to round the year out. Compelling, compelling stuff. I know I've said it before. We've already shouted out more than a few of the uh, productional aspects of this film. Works so well because of the writing, because of the direction. The actors are all at the top of their game. It is a somewhat troubling murder mystery story really getting into the nitty-gritty and looking under the microscope at relationships and seeing how much of that influences other people's decisions or how they look at you looking at how your media can be interpreted looking at oh you wrote this years ago and that could be used in court as we're examining your relationship here just fascinating stuff oh I mean, I will watch that movie probably once a year. I will keep showing people that movie. And number four, my new favorite holiday film for Christmas time, The Holdovers. Uh, Alexander Payne, Paul Giamatti, Dominic Sessa, Devine Joy Randolph, all coming together to tell a really deeply felt story about privilege, about what it is to work hard, what it is to experience life and the depressions that come with that and the unfortunate realities that not everybody receives the same kind of love that they probably deserve. Just a beautiful, beautiful movie. Number three, Ava DuVernay's origin. There was really nothing more emotionally moving for me probably as a film went this year than origin. Um, so much that I learned so much that I feel I took away with, um, it just, it makes you want to be a better person. It makes you really want to understand the dynamics of humanity and how we interact with one another. And this urge to feel like we need to be better than someone else or be above someone else. The performances are incredible. The writing is just phenomenal. Um, I, I cannot get one of the last interviews out of my head when they talk about this young black boy and how he was not able to go swimming with the rest of his baseball team. I will leave you to watch the movie to know what I'm talking about, but I just one of the most upsetting 
and moving scenes that I've seen this year. It just like it broke my heart and it made me want to punch the screen. It made me want to invent time travel. It just she tells this story so effectively. One of it is this top three is tough because at number two, I battled this a while, but at number two is Oppenheimer. I saw it three times in IMAX, each time better than the last. Visually, auditorially, everything. It was just peak cinema. Christopher Nolan, Killian Murphy doing things on a level that nobody else was doing. And I thought as many times as I saw it, as many times as I listened to the soundtrack, that this was the movie. This was it for the year. I don't know how something tops this. And then I saw another film that takes place right around the same time period that really blew my mind. And my number one movie of the year is Godzilla Minus One. It is, for me, the best Godzilla movie they've ever made. Going back to the originals, I've watched so many of the old man in a suit stomping around on the fake set. The MonsterVerse movies they've made recently, some of it's great, but you look at how much money they pump into those and they can never tell a great story. They have stupid non-compelling human characters who just get in the way and watching Godzilla minus one, you could not ask for a better story, more compelling characters, more enjoyable characters to watch kind of taking on this character. I mean, there's allusions to jaws in the film there. From my money, the best ensemble cast of the year, you know, I went in, I went with my dad who's a huge, huge Godzilla fan like all right you know it's in japanese which you know we're both fine with we're like all right it's toho let's get the the japanese version of godzilla let's you know take in another one of their interpretations of the character and going back to world war ii having this really compelling character and story once a kamikaze pilot backing out of that afraid to kind of make that commitment and lose his life how people respond to that afterwards and how he has to kind of live after that. And then there's Godzilla in the background and he's not just in the background. I mean, Godzilla's devastating. His atomic breath has never been better. I don't know. I just, I left Godzilla minus one eager to go back completely jaw on the floor, baffled at what I saw. It, it is the best movie of the year. I'm going to be going again when they put it in the black and white, kind of with a more horror kind of slant for it. Didn't see it in IMAX, so I'm going to remedy that. But one viewing of Godzilla Minus One, that sealed the deal. That was like, wow, that's the best movie I've seen this year. Undoubtedly, the music, all the homages to the old Toho films, just insanely compelling stuff. The science in the movie... You know, in the 1940s, how are we going to beat Godzilla when we don't have modern tech that we have now? It's just freaking brilliant. It is just top to bottom, so unique, so interesting, compelling and awesome action-wise, incredible characters, storytelling at its finest. So there you have it. I know this is the longest thing I've probably recorded here, and if you've listened to any of this or all of it, I appreciate you more than you know. 2023 was such a great year to get back into film criticism in this capacity. It has been such a joy doing these recordings and seeing these many films, interacting with new followers and different people, uh, learning 
more about you guys and the films that you like. Uh, just having engaging conversations about this stuff. Moving into 2024, I expect nothing but more of this. If only at a higher production level, I'm going to get the office going. We're going to get some more personality in these recordings as well. But thank you again just to anybody and everybody who tuned in this year to NT Movie Reviews. It is more appreciated than you know. This is like the best unofficial job in the world. So thank you as always. If you want to stay tuned, 2024 movie reviews will be kicking up sooner than you think. So stay tuned to NT Movie Reviews on all social media networks, podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Thank you guys. Have a great rest of your afternoon, morning, whatever time it is. Happy New Year. Let's make 2024 awesome.